three weeks ago, uh, we heard um, about Haggai chapter 1. And so we heard about how God's people had been in rebellion against God for a very, very long time. They were living away from the Lord, or they were trying to. And so then the Lord, He, he granted their request. He, he sent them away from their presence. He sent them, or from His presence. He sent them into exile. And while they were there, a number of them, they longed to return to God. So God, eventually He blessed them and He, he called them home to Jerusalem, to the, the promised land, to live with Him again. And they were overjoyed. You remember that? They were so excited to build the altar. They were so excited to build the temple. They were so excited to live with their God again. And they started right away to build the temple and the altar. But then obstacles came up. And they lay these things aside for 16 years. And then that's where Haggai 1 comes in. Then God calls them out of their apathy, out of their contentment away from God. And instead, he encourages them to stop focusing on their own houses, but to build his house. Not just to dwell by themselves, but to dwell with him. And then we read in Haggai chapter 2, uh, two weeks ago now, about how after just a few months, the people were really discouraged. They, they felt like the work wasn't going as fast as they wanted. They kept on being interrupted. And they felt like it was quite pointless. The temple was never going to be what it once was. And then God encourages them, stop looking around you. Just stop and look up. Don't be discouraged. I'm at work here. I am with you. I will bless you. And I will make your temple great, greater than you can possibly imagine. And he did that by blessing it through even uh, foreign rulers like Herod. But he did that mostly in our Lord Jesus Christ who came into that temple and superseded it. And now we come to Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10. Jumping back into the story. It seems almost like we could have ended last time, right? It would have been beautiful. A really nice ending. If we stopped with uh, God's wonderful promise in verse 9 here. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. But yet, here we read, God sends Haggai back one more time. And he comes with this message. Let's read this together. Haggai 2, 10 to the end of the book. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, does that food become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? 
Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus far the reading of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this past week I was reading some relationship advice. Uh, One article that I read was very interesting. It said you should find someone to have a relationship with who loves your flaws unconditionally. The article went on saying, our flaws are sometimes the most intriguingly beautiful parts of us. And so... The author said, are you too blunt? Do you really struggle with that? Well, simply find someone who just loves how blunt you are. Are you too messy? Find someone who's happy to live with, and I quote, half of your closet strewn all over the floor. Are you too impulsive? Find someone who won't get mad when you spend your entire paycheck on new clothes, even though you promised you'd start saving. Simple, just find someone like that. Finally, the article concludes... Find someone who knows that you're not perfect, but it doesn't matter. They're not looking for perfect anyway. And so, I ask, what do you think? Is this the ideal that we're striving towards? Is this what true love looks like? Not someone who will lovingly help us to grow and to improve ourselves and get better, but someone who's happy with us just exactly as we are. Someone who's not really looking for perfect anyway. Because if so, if that's true love, then we have a problem. Because our God, as we've heard, He is perfectly holy. And our God is looking for absolutely perfect. And so since that's the case, the question from our text then is, how will God bless His defiled people? How can a holy God love and live with unholy people like us? We see this in two parts. First, our hopeless situation. And then secondly, His perfect solution. So first, our hopeless situation. And so again, if you think back to where we are in Haggai, things seem to be going really great at this point, don't they? God has graciously brought his people back from exile, and things got off to a rocky start, as we heard, the 16 years they neglected their relationship with the Lord. Uh, But now, they're working hard for God again. They're building his temple. Progress is going on. This is a couple months later. And while the work is going strong, Then God sends word again through Haggai to his people. He comes with a third message, and it's a tough one. Like I said, maybe it would have been nice, it seems, if the book just ended a little bit earlier, uh, on the the really positive, really wonderful note uh, of last time. The, The temple that they were building, which looked quite pathetic so far, it would exceed their wildest dreams, it would be more glorious than Solomon's temple, and it would be superseded by Jesus Christ. And in him, God says, He would give his people true and lasting peace. 
Now that's an ending to a book. But then God calls Haggai to preach a third and final sermon. God sends Haggai to ask the priests a question. It's good to realize this was the job of the priests. They were supposed to know the, the word of God inside and outside, backwards and forwards. And so if the people had questions, they would go to the priest and they would answer them. And so God sends Haggai with a question in verse 11. To verse 11, God sends Haggai, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So in other words, if someone takes consecrated, holy, set-apart bread, or sorry, meat rather, uh, that has been offered to God as a gift, if someone takes this and he wraps it up and he puts it in his pocket, and then his pocket brushes up against some other food, does that food also become holy? And this is an easy answer for the priests. This is very obvious. Grade school stuff. No. Holiness is not contagious like that. It doesn't just spread to other things just because something holy comes near to it. No. Something else doesn't become holy. All right, great. First theological question answered. And then God goes on in verse 13. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And again, another easy question for the priests. They say, yes, it does become unclean. Now again, the Old Testament law is very, very clear. Uncleanness is extremely contagious in the rituals outlined all throughout the Old Testament. If you touch something unclean in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament uh, dispensation, then if you touch something like a dead body, well then you yourself were actually considered unclean until you performed the necessary washings and ceremonies. Maybe you've heard about some of those. And so for as long as your ritual uncleanness lasted, you actually, you, you were cut off from God's people. Often you weren't allowed in your own house. You, you had to stay outside of the town. Uh, more than that, in a sense, you were cut off from God uh, as a picture of what sin does to us. You weren't allowed at the feasts. You couldn't offer sacrifices. You couldn't even go into the temple. And so that's what uh, the message that God is sending here is about. Ritual uncleanness, uh, a picture of our sin. And so the principle here is clear and judged on by the priests themselves. Uncleanness and impurity, the results of sin, they are very contagious. But holiness is not. And then God goes on to explain the lesson in verse 14. There he says, Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So God has a message here for his people. First of all, for the Israelites, but also for us. He tells these people, yes, you're working on my temple now. That is fantastic. That is what I called you to do. And my temple is a holy thing. It's set apart for me. And yes, you're offering holy sacrifices there. But his lesson is this. Make no mistake. Just because of your proximity to these things, that doesn't make you holy as individuals. Just because you're brushing up against my temple... Just because you're offering holy sacrifices to me, that doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you inside worthy of me. This is a message that we need to hear too. 
Maybe you know of someone, maybe you are someone who seems to think like this. You, maybe you know someone or are someone who was once baptized and so just occasionally goes to church. And when we meet these people, often uh, we, we warn them that that's not really how it works. You can't just be baptized once and go to church occasionally and then become holy or pleasing to God by osmosis. Uh, the holiness doesn't just rub off on you, flowing from the atmosphere and the church into you. Uh, but we need to remember the same is true for every single one of us, even people who come to church not once or twice a year, but once or twice a week. If you come to church once or twice a week, that is wonderful. But can that make you holy? You should think about that. Can the holiness of the worship service just rub off on you and, and leave with you when you leave this place? Maybe you go to women's Bible study or care groups or to a prayer meeting. Can that make you holy? I'll just stick with you. Can that make you right before God? God teaches us here very clearly. It can't. Actually, God teaches us a lot more, doesn't he? God teaches us here the opposite is true. No matter how often you go, church can't make you holy. No, how, no matter how often you pray, prayer can't make you holy. No matter how well-read your Bible is, reading your Bible can't purify your soul. But you know what? God explains here, your impurity can defile these things. That's what God says to his people here. Not only does the the presence, uh, the arrival, you could say, of the temple not make them worthy of him, not only do do their sacrifices not make them worthy of him, actually, he says here, that them, their uncleanness, it makes the works of their hands, every work of their hands, the temple, everything that they offer, their sacrifices, it makes those things unclean. Because holiness isn't contagious. Unholiness is. And so now for us, we don't have a temple, do we? We don't have sacrifices. We don't even have purity laws. These things have been fulfilled in the New Testament. But the lesson is still the same. Living a life filled with Christian activities, like worship, like having Christian friends, reading and praying, this is an awesome thing. These are all fantastic. But the lesson is if we remain in our sin, these things don't cleanse us. We defile them. If God judges us based solely on the quality of our devotions or our church attendance or anything else we do, we're in serious trouble. Who here can offer the perfect prayer that would be worthy of God? I can't. We can see this so clearly in Isaiah chapter 1. And I was pretty uneasy when I read this chapter earlier this week. Isaiah chapter 1, if you have your Bible, maybe turn there with me. I'll skip certain parts, but I'll start at verse 10 and then read some words from there. This is God's word to unrepentant Israel before the Exodus. At this point, they had lived for years just going through the motions of being God's people. They went to church, so to speak. Uh, They offered prayers and sacrifices and they kept all God's feasts. And yet their heart was not in their worship at all. Uh, You can read about it throughout the Old Testament. The rest of the week, they were corrupt. Uh, They worshipped other gods. They they didn't love God with their heart at all. They openly worshipped other gods. What they seemed to think was that the temple and the sacrifices and their prayers would make them holy before God. But God tells them in Isaiah chapter 1 to think again, starting at verse 10. 
This is to the people of Israel after not repenting for many years. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Now verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. Verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Wow. These people, they were living far from God with their hearts, but they were still worshiping God with their lips. And here God essentially tells them to stop. He teaches them that holy things like the temple and sacrifices are completely unable to cleanse God's people. But actually, they can defile these holy gifts, these sacrifices that were supposed to be a delight to our God. He says they're a burden. They're prayers that our God is supposed to love to hear. He says he won't listen to them. He doesn't want to hear them anymore. And clearly we see in Isaiah, if people keep on going on living in their sin and just try to catch holiness along the way by things like worship services, stuff like that, God's not deceived. He's, he's burdened by this. And so God's warning to the Israelites in Haggai is watch out. Because God's people were building the, the temple and they were celebrating the feasts and they were offering sacrifices. But God wants to remind them these things cannot save them. Not at all. These things performed by sinful people aren't perfect. And our God is looking for perfect. What a hopeless situation human beings like us are in. You need to realize that. What can we do by ourselves? We're sinful people from the inside out. We're not holy, and we can't make ourselves holy. More than that, when God gives holy things like the temple or sacrifices for them, or like worship and singing and prayer for us, these things don't purify us. It's not contagious. We're so corrupt that on our own we'll corrupt these things too. After years and years of using them wrongly, they can even become a burden to God. How discouraging is that? We see a picture of this in the leper that we read about earlier in Luke chapter 5. Lepers, people with the disease of leprosy, they were the perfect picture of uncleanness in Bible times. And think about it this way for a moment. All right. How many healthy people would you need to send to that leper to make that leper healthy? What a ridiculous question. That's not how it works. You could send every healthy person in the world to that leper, and it wouldn't make him healthy. Instead, he might make them sick. And so we're left here in a hopeless situation, seemingly. If our presence in church doesn't sanctify us, and our sinful hearts can even defile it, then what can we do? God's given us the church. Should we even bother going? Likewise for the Israelites. Think about how confusing this message seems at first to them. God just called them to build a temple for him, but now he's saying their worship there is unclean? Should they give up? Should they stop again? Or what are God's people supposed to do if their hearts are so contaminated, if they're so desperately sick? 
Now, having seen our hopeless situation, we now move on to God's perfect solution, God's perfect plan. So God starts showing his people his plan by pointing backwards. He's shown that their worship is imperfect and their temple is imperfect because their hearts are imperfect. They are imperfect. And then God reminds them that before, they were also imperfect. We heard about this a couple weeks ago. He reminds them in verse 16 uh, about what had just happened the previous 16 years or so. He says in verse 16, How did you fare when you were living far away from me? How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you uh, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So the people, they, they worked hard for 16 years. And at one point, they expected 400 pounds of wheat. They went to check. They found 200 because God had cursed their work. They toiled and expected 50 liters of wine. God only gave them 20. And the whole time that they were the Israelites, God's chosen people, living in God's land, offering sacrifices on his altar, going to the feasts. And yet God was cursing them. But now, in verse 19, God says something shocking. Something completely different. After all of this, after their hard-heartedness for 16 years, after decades of hard-heartedness before that, after outlining so clearly their uncleanness and unworthiness, next we hear this shocking line from God himself in verse 19. Right at the very end there. Do you see it? It's the seed in the barn, indeed the vine, the fig tree, pomegranate, and olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. What in the world is going on? What has changed? Well, externally, only one thing has changed. And I think that's the point of this message. Externally, one thing has changed. They're still living in the promised land. They're still following the feasts. They're still offering daily sacrifices. So from the outside, if you look at it, there's only one thing that's new. It's the temple. Finally, they're building the temple again. It's been a couple months of work now. They're making some good headway. And now, God's going to bless them. What's the natural conclusion? God's impressed with their temple, right? They're doing a pretty good job. Uh, that's why people built beautiful temples back then in Gentile nations. To secure blessings from the gods. They would build huge temples. They would offer crazy sacrifices. And then when they, their crops went well, things like that, they would think, I've done it. I've impressed God. I've earned his blessings. But no, the people cannot think that. And that's why Haggai comes with this last message. That's why this message is so important for them and for us. God is telling them nothing externally has changed here. Not really. Your sacrifices before were defiled. Well, your sacrifices still are defiled. They still don't earn my love and blessing. They're not good enough and will never be good enough to earn my blessing. Your sacrifices, or in our case, your singing, your singing is not beautiful enough to earn God's love. It never will be. Your church attendance, it won't be perfect enough. You can't check off enough boxes with Bible readings or something like that to earn God's love. External things will never make God have to bless you. It doesn't work that way. God says these external things, they're problematic. And that's because 
internally we have a problem. Internally our hearts are defiled by sin. Yet from this day onward, God says, I will bless you. Why then? If not the temple, then why? The difference here, brothers and sisters, is very clear. Internally, the Israelites were sinful before. And they still are sinful. Likewise, we were sinful before we came to Christ, but we still are sinful, as you can see throughout our lives. The difference is these people used to be sinful people who turned their hearts away from God. who are trying to live on their own. We're trying to live without them. Now these are sinful people who are humbly turning towards their God again. This was the problem before. You can see it in verse 17. God said he, he was striking them like uh, a father uh, disciplining his, his child. He, he was striking them. And he says the reason why in verse 17. He says the issue was You would not turn to me. This is classic Old Testament language for repentance. The people's worship is still far from perfect. Their hearts are still far from perfect. But there's one crucial difference. They have turned their back towards their sin now. And they've turned their face toward their God. That makes all the difference. Now that they have turned to God, God has turned his hand of blessing to them, he says. He looks at their imperfect they're, remember, they're sort of embarrassing temple. That was nothing like the temple before. God looks at this temple, and brothers and sisters, our God is delighted. And he's not delighted because he has this marvelous temple. He's delighted because he has them. He has their hearts. He has their worship. He has his people back. He's thrilled to have their genuine worship. And so now he looks at the, pretty much the same things. They're still imperfect sacrifices. But now that they're with him again, now that they love him again, he can't wait to start pouring out blessings. But he wants them to know it's not because of their external worship, it's because of their hearts. The curses had worked. They brought their people back to him for renewed grace and forgiveness and blessing. They brought them back to him. And likewise for us, Brothers and sisters, this is so important. It's a a remarkable truth for you to take home with you today. Brothers and sisters, your worship is pleasing to God. When we worship God here, or when we strive to worship Him in our day-to-day lives, God is delighted. He loves it. Not because of the external stuff, not because our devotions are so good, but because He has you. He has me. He has our hearts. He loves it when you come to him and you're in prayer, even though your prayers, they're not that great. He's happy even with our imperfect work. And what great news that is for people like us. We work so hard for God at times, but our work still falls so far short from perfect. So the question is, do we need to be embarrassed day after day of trying to live for the Lord, but slipping and falling and stumbling time after time, day after day, making the same mistakes over and over? Do we need to be embarrassed at the end of the day as we lay that day's pitiful work at the foot of the cross? Do we need to fear that our shortcomings and failings are exhausting God? He doesn't really want to hear from us. No. Paul urges us, on account of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How can this be? We need to, we need to ask the question, how can this be? Has God lowered his standards? Has he learned to love our flaws unconditionally? Has he changed his mind and said, you know what? You're not perfect, but that's okay. I wasn't really looking for perfect anyway. Does God love us that much? No. God loves us so much more than that. He doesn't say, come to me when you're perfect. And he doesn't say, it's okay. You stay imperfect and plagued with sin. And that's what we have to have crystal clear in our minds. Because remember what we heard earlier. When we're in our sin, we defile the things that are holy. When we're in our sin, not when we're still sinful. It might seem minor, but this is the difference between living a life that is pleasing to God, delighting to Him, and being a stench in His nostrils like we read about earlier in Isaiah chapter 1. When we are in our sin, we're living a life with no confession, without repentance. We sin day in and day out, and we hardly think of anything of it. If we ever think about our sins, we think they're not too bad. Other people's are way worse. Uh, and we think, besides, I, I can't outsin the grace of God. No way. But when we're sinful, we are living a life where we still sin day in and day out. But the sins that we commit, they hurt us to our core. We fight against our sinful nature. We resist sin. And we have victory sometimes. <laughs> not as much as we'd like. But when we're beaten by sin daily, time and time again, when we give in, the sin is followed by prayer. The sin is followed by time on our knees, confessing what we've done, confessing our weakness, our, our unworthiness, covering ourselves in the worthy blood of Christ, pleading on behalf of his sacrifice for God's gracious forgiveness. You see, it's not just about sinning less. It's not about making our external worship good enough to please God. It's about repenting more. It's about living a life characterized by repentance. Repenting so much that our carpet begins to wear out from all our time in prayer. God doesn't say, come before me in prayer only when you're perfect. He doesn't say, it's okay, you just stay imperfect. Instead, what God says to you, what God says to me, is my dear children, come to me as you are. Sinful and weak, tired and heavy laden, come to me now and I will give you rest. I'll accept you just as you are, but I won't leave you as you are. Come to me in your sin, and I will make you perfect. And we get a hint at how this works and what comes next in our text. There God outlines his perfect plan, his plan to turn the curses that we deserve into blessings that on our own we simply do not. His plan to turn our defiled work and defiled souls into perfect living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We read in verse 20 that on that same day, the 24th day of the month, God sends Haggai to another person, another man. He sends Haggai to Zerubbabel, the, government, the governor of the returned Israelites. And he tells Zerubbabel there in verse 22 that he is about to shake the nations. That means he's going to turn the world, the enemies of his people, upside down. He's going to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. And he'll do this by, what we read in verse 23, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, 
and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. And this might just be the most beautiful uh, verse in the whole book, but we're going to need a quick history lesson if we're going to know what that's talking about, right? It's pretty confusing. Zerubbabel, you have to realize, he was kind of a nobody. He was born a slave in exile. But if you were to take a DNA test on him, you would see that he had an ancestor, likely his great-grandfather, who was a king. An awful king. His grandfather was Jehoiakim, a king from the line of David. And before exile, God went to him and rebuked him for his sin. And when he did, God said these words in Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, though you were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. Many years before, God had given a promise, a promise of a Messiah. He given it specifically again to, to David and to his descendants. Here, after so long of rebellion, God says, if you're like a signet ring, I'm going to rip you off. We need to realize someone's signet ring, that, that was an important person's seal. It was like their signature. And so it was deeply personal. And depending on who owned it, you can imagine, it was incredibly powerful. A great king's seal had a huge amount of authority. And for that reason, kings kept their rings close by, either on their right hand where they could never lose it, or they kept it on a, a necklace close to their heart. And great human king's seals had a great amount of authority. But now, God himself is talking about his own seal. The seal of the greatest king, the divine almighty king. And Zerubbabel's great-grandfather had neglected this incredible privilege. But now, God had drawn his people back to himself. Not sinless people, sinful people. But drawn back their hearts to him. And so now finally, through the book of Haggai, his people were back with him. And now he gives that promise again. He reaffirms it. The promise of a Messiah. Of a Savior who can make these things possible. Who can make people like us, sinful people, holy and acceptable to God. And of course, Zerubbabel would never be that big of a deal. Had, before this series, had any of you ever heard of Zerubbabel? Probably some of you, but maybe not that many. He kind of disappears after this. But nevertheless, God loved him despite his weakness. And he had a great plan to work through him and his descendants to bring a great Messiah. And when this Messiah came to earth, he would fulfill this promise. He would begin to turn the world upside down. And we read that together in Luke chapter 5. Did you notice that in Luke chapter 5? How, how God turns the Old Testament, the, the purity laws, everything that we know about the contagiousness of holiness and the contagiousness of sin, he turns it all upside down. In Luke 5 we read, the great Messiah came down and right at the beginning of his ministry, a leper came to him. The uncleanest of the unclean. The leper came like us. With nothing. Nothing but impurity from the inside out. And this leper, he fell on his face in the dust before Jesus Christ. And he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what did our Savior do? He reached out to him and he touched him. This great Messiah came down. This Messiah who is God himself. And he proved to us that his holiness is contagious. 
Because Jesus came as the better king and the better temple, we heard about that, and the better high priest and the better sacrifice, he didn't just identify our impurity for us. He scrubbed our impurity clean. When Jesus touched that leper, he gave the leper his holiness. But more than that, in doing so, he took that impurity on himself. And what did he do with it? He carried the impurity with him all the way to the cross. There he put the lepers, he put our impurity to death once and for all with his own body. He offered himself as a sacrifice that we might be acceptable, that we might be clean and we might live. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Greater love has no one than this. So brothers and sisters, don't be content with your impurity. Don't be okay with your secret sins that you go home to after church. Don't think that just coming to church saying some quick prayers will make you right with God. It won't. That's not how holiness works. Your sin is far too powerful. So is mine. It can pollute even our best prayers. Maybe you've heard it before once. John Bunyan once said, There is enough sin in my best prayer to send the whole world to hell. Don't trust in your imperfect church attendance to purify you. Don't trust in your imperfect Bible reading or your imperfect prayers to purify you. They they can't save you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save your soul. Repent. Live a life of repentance, turning each day away from your sin and turn straight to Jesus Christ. When you do this, and only when you do this, you can worship in confidence. Because God knows us. He knows that on our own, we're hopeless sinners. But he's also promised in Christ that in him, you and me, we're perfect saints. We read this in Hebrews 10 verse 14. Here's a wonderful promise for you today. By one sacrifice, Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Did you catch those words? By his death and resurrection, Christ has made you Christ has made me perfect forever. Doesn't that make you want to fall on your knees? You're perfect forever. So say your prayers, please. Read your Bible, of course. Join prayer groups, please do. But do so knowing that these things cannot make you clean. But instead, do these things knowing that in Christ You already are clean. You are clean forever. What a Savior we have. These things are gifts from God Himself, prayer and Bible reading. These are are gifts to bless our worship and help us to grow and enjoy our life with our God. To help us by the power of Spirit to put to death any remaining sin that dwells in us against our will and clings to us in our worship. And that is why God told his people to build their imperfect, their kind of pathetic temple. The temple didn't make them holy. The temple allowed them to enjoy fellowship with their holy God. This fellowship they were granted for a reason they couldn't possibly comprehend. Why would their God want fellowship with them? This was fellowship based only on the perfect sacrifice of the coming Messiah through Zerubbabel. C.S. Lewis puts this so beautiful, beautifully when he says, God does not love you, doesn't love me, 
because we are good. God makes us good because he loves us. So brothers and sisters, go to him and pray and strive and work hard so that he might make us good because he loves us. Jesus paid such a high price to free you and for me and me from our sins. Let's not go on living in it a second longer than we have to. The bad news is on our own, we would never be good enough. Our impure sacrifices, our impure temples, flowing out of our impure worship, flowing out of our impure hearts, would never be good enough to make us right with God. But the good news is with Christ, your worship will always be good enough, as long as you trust in him. Christ's perfection is good enough to cover all of your weaknesses and mine. He took your entire curse so that there's nothing left for you except for blessing. He took all of our defilement, past, present, and future. There's nothing left except his purity. And so as we labor on in weakness and rejoicing, each day we turn our back, we repent of our sin, and we turn our face to God, and we look forward to when we're welcomed in with Christ. And these words, they too, make me weaken the needs. Think about when we'll be welcomed in with Christ into God's presence. And God will look over our lives. He'll he'll look at our imperfect hearts on our own, our imperfect worship on our own. And he'll look at our perfect Savior beside us. And he'll say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. Because the good news is, God is looking for perfection. And in Christ, he's given it to you. Amen. Let's sing in response.